0: Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. Hey,
1: one of these days I'll take care of that.
0: New Year's resolution, buddy. Yeah. All right. On this episode, it's fall time, and heck, for some of you, there's actually snow on the ground. I don't want to have any.
1: <laughs> it was it was thirty two degrees here this morning.
0: As the weather turns colder, we need more protection from the chill, and what better way to protect yourself than get even colder? So, on this special Halloween episode, instead of letting ghosts and ghouls freeze you in your tracks, use your noggin to freeze your beer. But first, this message from our sponsors Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog eared copy. Because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com.
1: Family owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft malts and award winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro level equipment and the best in cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same day order processing, and guaranteed two day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply.
0: The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the AHA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Thank you for listening to those messages from our sponsors. Remember, whenever you interact with them, please tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files so they know that their dollars are well spent and we can keep doing this show for you. If you hadn't figured out from the, well, either the title of this episode or that little glib intro of mine, this episode is going to be all about ice beer. Ice beer being, you know, sort of a concentrated version of beers of sort of traditionally associated with Germany. But icing in recent years has actually spread in terms of its influence and reach. And so we're actually going to talk about, you know, not only some traditional type of ice beer uh, methodologies, but also how you can do this at home, assuming you live someplace where it's legal.
1: That's right. Uh, We need to say this right now to cover our butts. If distillation isn't legal where you live, do not do this. We do not endorse it. We don't want you to do it. So just keep that in mind.
0: The show provided solely for our listeners in New Zealand and for informational purposes elsewhere in the world. That's right. Anything beery has to have a legend behind it. It comes from the Reichelbrau Brewery in Kumbach, And the story, there are multiple shades of the story, of course, which is one way that you can tell that this story has its feet firmly planted in legend. But the story basically goes that a young uh, brewery worker uh, was moving casts of Doppelbach around. You know, so the nice, rich, strong, double uh, doublebach. And. Who knows, got tired at the end of a shift or missed a barrel or something and left a barrel outside on a cold, dark German winter evening, only to return in the morning to find that the barrel itself was almost completely frozen. And of course, the workers were beside themselves because, oh, no, we've ruined this this batch of beer, this barrel. And so they went to investigate because industrious people trying to save their butts and cracked open the cask, knocked away the ice, and found in the middle of the keg this pool of rich, dense, syrupy liquid that they dippered out and put into their cups to drink and discovered, oh my, this, this is Elixir. <laughs> really, that is right up there with, you know, a bedtime story. I I think all it's really missing is, you know, kind of – An angel and a devil on that young brewer's shoulders telling him about whether or not he should leave the barrel out overnight. And it would become like a 1940s, 1950s cartoon morality tale, only sort of skewed because the end results actually ended up being pretty good. What's undoubtedly true is that this process has happened multiple times and been discovered multiple times and forgotten about multiple times over the years. The Bavarians are the ones who kind of went and made it into a tradition. So that now, in Kumbach, there is this icebox tradition. And look, here's the reason why I say this. It gets really cold in a lot of parts in this world. And cold weather and watery things freeze. And boozy things freeze less. It's not exactly rocket science. It's kind of the sort of thing that somebody will discover accidentally, like, Hey, how come my rotten milk turned into cheese? Now, I've known a, a ton of people who have done this sort of truly accidentally and not in like that uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of accident way, all by doing the very, very simple and very, very stupid and very, very plausible thing of leaving your thermostat probe, you know, that little override thermostat outside your chest freezer refrigerator so that your thermostat thinks that the warm air of whatever room you're in, even your garage, is the actual temperature of your freezer. And so it keeps the freezer on, keeps driving the temperature down and down and down. And of course, overnight, that means stuff freezes. Oops. Yeah, oops. I've never done that. You know, that may be the one mistake I've never made. I've made it. (laughs) At least between the two of us, one of us has made it. Yeah, right. I I came back the last, actually, the last batch of Falcon's Claws that I did. I had it, unfortunately, in a mini fridge, so not a chest freezer, so it wasn't as bad. But I had it in that mini fridge and the probe got knocked out one night. And I came back the next morning to find that the mini fridge had built up this block of ice that had half encased the 10 gallon corny keg. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I, like I had to rock it out of there, like and tear and push and pull and break out a hair dryer in order to free my keg from this block of ice. So <laughs> good job, drunkie. Yeah. Well, hey, sometimes it happens. That's right. How does icing work? We kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. One, it has a long history in booze production, but also it's a natural phenomenon. In terms of long history, I can think of nothing better than the Niagara region of both New York and Canada, where you see ice wines, like the ones from Enniskillen and whatnot, and ice ciders. Those are done by either allowing the fruit to stay out on the vine or the trees until it gets cold and they freeze. So you get a kind of a double concentration effect. You get moisture loss due to the time on vine and then also ice formation. And then of course those will get crushed and the tiny, tiny little bit of juice that's free flowing because of the sugar will flow out and then that gets fermented. And I don't know if you guys have ever had an ice wine or ice iron. Denny, have you?
1: Uh yes, I've had ice wine before for sure.
0: Well I, I just remember the first time I had a sip of ice wine. The flavor of it was so intense that it felt like somebody put two little electric probes on the the back of my jaw muscles and caused them to dance.
1: Yeah, well, it, it really does concentrate the flavor. And, and I found that something like wine gets a lot sweeter. Uh, same thing like when you make a, a Bach or Doppelbach I said it just gets a lot sweeter because it concentrates all those flavors.
0: And now, of course... Modern production being modern production, a lot of ice wine and ice cider makers have skipped the step of leaving the fruit on the vine because you do lose a lot of moisture that way. And instead are picking ripe fruit or maybe overly ripe fruit and pulling it into giant industrial freezers and freezing it so that uh, they can do that process in a more controlled fashion. So both of those are pre-ferment freezing steps, uh, but much like our erstwhile lazy cellarmen post-fermentation freezing happens as well. The most famous one that most Americans are acquainted with is the idea of Applejack. And that's been a tradition here in the States since, well, before the States were a thing. And that is taking hard cider and allowing it to freeze overnight before trying to thaw out, just a little bit, and allow the booze to run out of the the jug. And this is actually very easy to do. If you are at home, you would take like a gallon jug of apple juice, ferment it, and then after it's done fermenting, cap it and throw it in your freezer and let it turn into almost a solid block, and then flip that thing upside down into a funnel and allow it to drain for a little while. And what comes out the other side has a mule-like kick, and is famous for giving people relatively nasty hangovers. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Have you had experience with Applejack?
1: Only a little bit of experience, and thank God, not enough to get to the nasty hangover stage.
0: And also don't confuse that with the Applejack brandy that you now find coming out of uh, New Jersey. That's actually traditionally distilled Apple brandy that just happens to carry the name Applejack now. Those are two forms of, you know, the sort of freezing process that people are doing. We're going to concentrate more on that post-ferment freezing, you know, kind of the one that is done with Applejack. I think it's no better time than now to get into just how does this work. We'll start actually with distillation, right? Remember I said Laird's Applejack is a distilled product and distillation or heat distillation depends upon the idea that different constituents of a solution can have different Vaporization points, right? So different points at which time those things will turn into steam. Water famously does this at 212 degrees at sea level on a clear, cloudy day with no pressure and no wind. Ethanol, on the other hand, its vaporization point is 174 degrees Fahrenheit. So you got a pretty wide difference there. Then, in theory, if you can heat a alcohol-containing beverage, like say wine or beer or cider, and you can heat it to 174 degrees. You can capture all the ethanol vapors that are coming off, and you you pass them through a condenser to cool them down and let them turn back to liquid, and you can capture all that ethanol leaving behind the water. In practicality, it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's the theory. Get your aqueous solution up to 174 and you'll you'll capture the ethanol, not the water. And then, you know, that's how you get your, your traditional pot stills and whatnot. That's how they work. And so, of course, you, if you know anything about whiskey making, you know that they do that run multiple times trying to get better and better concentration because it's not so clean. It turns out nature is far messier than math. Fractional freezing, which is the proper term for icing or freeze distillation or freeze concentration, whichever term you want to use fractional freezing depends upon the exact flip of heat distillation, and that is the fact that the different constituents in a solution can have different freezing points. Just like water turns to steam at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, or zeros degrees Celsius. Ethanol, instead of vaporizing at 174, freezes at negative 173 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: Ooh, that's a lot colder than my chest freezer.
0: Yeah, and that's the entire point. What we're actually doing when we're icing a beer is we're trying to solidify the water and making it possible so that we can still pour out the boozy stuff. So freeze distillation or concentration or however you want to refer to it, or fractional freezing, is incredibly easy to do with relatively few tools. You just need cold and a way to separate your final product. But it is far less efficient than heated distillation, and unlike heat distillation, it can concentrate some of the nasty stuff uh, rather than get rid of it. So that's things like cogeners and methanol and whatnot, and that's part of the reason why Applejack is notorious for giving wicked hangovers. Any thoughts, Denny?
1: Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's really a, a simple process, assuming that you have something uh, cold enough to to get it frozen or you, you live someplace where it's cold enough to sit it, sit it outside and do that. I've definitely heard of people doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. Of course, why would we bother to do this? Well, the first part, of course, is booze. Booze. I know you people <laughs> out there. There are a number of you out there who aren't satisfied until you have all the booze in the world. Truthfully, this process will produce more booze than you can shake a stick at. It will give you, you know, sort of more bang for your buck, but not as much as you think. And we'll get into that when we get into the practical example.
1: You know, and I have to say that uh, because I've been tending to lower alcohol beers the last few years, my interest is not in the booze. It's in the way it really intensifies the flavor.
0: Yep. And so getting into that, let's start with hops since, you know, a number of you guys are all about hops. Aroma characters, in my experience, they go away. You lose a lot of the aroma. If you remember a couple of years ago, it felt like there was every three or four months, there was another brewery releasing another thing that they called the world's strongest beer. And it started, obviously, with the race between Dogfish Head and Sam Adams, between Utopias and Worldwide Stout. You had BrewDog, you had BrewMeister, and you had a, a couple of German breweries jumping into this gang, all of them trying to see who could produce the the world's strongest beer, and like BrewDog had their... End of history, that came in at 55% ABV. Oh, God. Oh, even better. It was wrapped in the body of a dead squirrel.
1: <laughs> I remember that now for sure.
0: Yeah, the the beer bottle mouth came out of the, the squirrel's mouth. Such a lovely thing. And then, of course, there's the, the current champion, supposedly, which is Brewmeister's uh, Snake Venom, which comes in at 67.5% ABV. And part of the reason why I say suppose it is that there's some lab tests out there that uh, call some of these numbers for some of these big beers into question. Go figure.
1: Yeah, right.
0: And now the thing is, several of these were sort of amped up IPAs that had been freeze, freeze distilled multiple times. And while the bitterness was there, they actually used a lot of dry hopping in order to kind of give the beers some of that hop aroma character that, that you'd expect out of something calling itself an IPA. Hop's bitterness concentrates, but the Aroma and flavor goes bye-bye. Malt, and I think this is the big one. I think this is the one that everybody expects because this is where icing is usually used. Malt gets amped up. All right, it goes to Boy, 11. does it ever? All right, and this, is, this is straight up spinal tap territory. It goes to 11. Just like Denny was talking about with the ice wines, you know, how the, the wines become more intensely sweet the malt character becomes far more intense there is more caramel sweetness there is more of that malt unctuousness uh that malt depth that's there and things become more sticky that's the way it works yep uh, denny do you have any any thoughts on like any other changes to the malt character I mean other than just intensity I mean do we do roasts come through more do toasts come through do
1: You know, I don't have enough experience to really speak to that. The two times I've tried it before I knew it was illegal, I started with a box. So it had a really, really heavy uh, Munich malt character and it, it definitely intensified that. Uh, I would say that the sweetness was the, the main component of the flavor that got intensified. But uh, of course the maltiness did too, to a certain degree.
0: Well, and I think the trick to a good icebox is that yeah you get an amped up malt character you get some amped up sweetness but it doesn't become cloying and i know some of that we're depending upon the alcohol for but you know also make sure you got a strong enough hop character in there to begin with just don't go too strong
1: (laughs) yeah right
0: and then other things like yeast characters so things like your phenols your esters your diastole They all seem to get concentrated as well, but uh, not to the same level as, like, the malt. To me, the malt becomes the overriding character in almost all these ice things I've ever had. Right. So I do know that in the case of some of these really super large beers, like the Snake Venom from Brewmeister and whatnot, people will talk about how incredibly concentrated the phenol character is or how much these things smell like cloves or smell like, you know, a fruit bomb in addition to the malt that's there. So we know the yeast characters will get concentrated as well. But again, they'll play a second fiddle. The other thing, last one for my mind is carbonation. When you do this icing, uh, you can kiss goodbye and say sayonara to all of your bubbles that you already captured. So if you want to have icebock or ice beer that has a brisk carbonation, you are going to have to carbonate the thing again if you already carbonated it.
1: I can't imagine icing an already carbonated beer, but I, I suppose you certainly can. Well, and people
0: have certainly done it by accident. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts about what happens with the concentration process or why we'd want to do that?
1: Yeah, You know, again, for me, it's, it's all about the flavor. I, I really enjoy the flavor change that the beer goes through. Uh, I, I enjoy the intensity of flavor that you end up with.
0: I was going to say, I think the last commercial example of an Eisbach that I had was, I mean, actually it was an atypical one, it was the uh, Aventinus Weissenbach that they did iced.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think I remember trying that.
0: Yeah, and if you think of Aventinus' Weissenbach, uh, yeah, it's a, a dark a dark Weissenbach that they have. It's, I mean, it's banana bread. Chewy, sweet, banana-y, spicy thing. It's an absolutely wonderful beer. The Eisbach is that on steroids. Again, not much in the ways of hops, but boy, everything else in that beer really sings in that in that icebox version. Of course, I haven't seen it fresh for a while, and I think we'll get into why.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's been many years since I've had a, a commercial icebox.
0: So now, before we get into the legalities and whys and wherefores, uh, let's talk about one other term that brewers will often see, which is ice beer uh, in the English, or ice brewed. And this was a big fad in the in the 90s, and st- still actually shockingly around, and still shockingly popular. Basically, ice brewing was originally done by both Molson's and Labatt in Canada, now part of Coors and ABI, uh, respectively. And they both did this in 1993, when I was in college. And Labatt claimed a patent on the process, which is part of the reason why things kind of went a little funky for a while the real crux of it is you got to stop and you got to remember the motivation of lager breweries. Their big thing that they are always looking for is how do we cut down the production time on our beer? How do we take that beer from grain to glass in the fewest days possible while still doing lagering? Because all that time spent, you know, putting tanks is a drain on the revenue as opposed to beer sitting on the shelf or going through the taps, which is money coming back in. The theory is behind ice brewing is that by intentionally creating tiny ice crystals, we're not talking massive ice crystals, but not freezing, a brewer can trap excess proteins, yeast, and other things that usually take time to clear in the lagering process. And so the beer is kept cold and in some cases treated with little seed crystals, right? You know, like little, almost the the ice equivalent of nucleation sites on a a beer glass. Mm Mm-hmm. Those seed crystals, you know, cause the ice to start to form. And then the ice stays behind after they go through a special filtering process. And it yields a slightly stronger beer that's, well, in theory, ready faster. And, of course, in the, back in the 90s, and I still even today, drinkers kind of clamped onto that stronger label, right? And you know, the fact like, oh, this is ice brewed. It's stronger. 1993, 1994 really became the time of... Uh, what I think of as the Ice Wars, because suddenly everybody had an ice beer. You had Bud Ice, you had Ice House. You had. I mean, it was like everywhere you <laughs> turned, there was another ice. Uh, to this day, one of uh, one of Anheuser Busch's most popular selling beers in turn that isn't Bud or Bud Light is Natural Light Ice. So ice still is around, and now some of these versions were indeed stronger, at least compared to the normal versions of the beer. Five and a half percent to five instead, right? But in almost all the cases, both the Canada, uh, Canadian government, and the U.S. government looked at this and said we're wary of this because it's beer strengthening technique. And so, to avoid concerns about you know whether or not they're running afoul of distillation uh, laws and the extra taxation that comes with products of concentration, the resulting ice beer is usually diluted back down to within 0.5 ABV of the original uh, target gravity. So that's the reason why you don't see like a lot of times these massive shifts because they don't want to pay the extra taxes on, on that stuff and take all the extra restrictions. There you go. Ice brewing. It's a trick actually to speed up brewing and it is make something slightly stronger and something a little more edgy and macho and manly. Did you ever have any ice beer experiences?
1: You mean drinking them or making them
0: drinking them i 'm assuming uh, you didn 't try to do seed crystals
1: no, no, I did not try and do that no no i you know um I had some ice beers i mean it 's been a long time i The most recent one is one the ice box that I made, maybe like Four years ago, uh, my commercial versions are way in my past. Because again, as much as I appreciate the flavor, uh, I, I don't, I don't appreciate or tolerate the alcohol very well. <laughs> no, I never made a Bud Ice or a
0: Molson Ice. Uh, I can't see the point. I know at least one of our listeners has seen the point and has probably done it. So, listener, if you've done ice brewing as practiced by Molson and Coors and Labatz and Bud, let me know. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com I'm going to be amused. Yeah, and uh, we won't use your real name. As long as they brew it to 0.5%, they're fine, which gets us into the legality question. We're going to go from the U.S. perspective here because it's hard enough to track what alcohol laws are like here in the U.S., let alone trying to go global with it. I will say that the only country in the world that allows anything considered to be distillation at home is New Zealand. So all of our Kiwi listeners out there, congratulations. You don't have to listen to me now. From a U.S. perspective, there's been a lot of back and forth on this. And so let's get into the the first things first. Most governments frown on any process of concentration. Nominally, it's a health and safety concern since there are worries about the concentration of uh, methanol and cogeners and also just, you know, sort of more booze being available to everybody and the health impacts of that. But the worries about cheap, strong drink, you know, are there to cause too many uh, drunk drivers and accidents and health problems. And also there's a lot of worry about people trying to skirt taxes and higher taxes on things that are considered spirits. So the long and short of it is uh, multiple people in the homebrew community have gone back and forth with the TTP about this, and they've gotten sort of different answers at different times, which is not surprising. And it appears that the the current point of view, and this does not include any legal arguments about gold-bordered and fringed flags and sovereign citizens— Uh, That Yes, icing is considered against the federal tax code, and it is considered to be a form of distillation because the upshot is, is that they don't care about the process. They care about the end result. It's not important that you're not using heat. It's that you're actually ending up with more booze in the product. Years
1: ago, when I researched this, I came to the conclusion that uh, freeze concentration, which is kind of what you're doing with ice beer, was legal, although distillation wasn't. But apparently since then, there's been a a little bit uh, of clarity on that and uh, what I used to think is wrong.
0: So again, it's about the end result, not necessarily the process. Now, having said all that, it is highly unlikely that the TTB tax goons are are going to descend upon you, uh, since there's a ton of other things they're doing. All right, now that's enough talking about you know history and various forms. Let's get down to brass tacks and talk about how you actually do this if you're someplace that you can legally do this. There are a couple of different ways, but I will start with the big one because things get concentrated, particularly that malt sweetness. The first thing that you must do is ferment your beer dry. Do not take a sickly sweet beer and go and make an ice beer out of it.
1: No, I mean, and even if you're starting with a sweet beer like a Bach or a Doppelbach, you don't want to overdo it. You want want a a little bit of the B word in there.
0: Now, so this means you take all the usual steps for fermenting a big beer. So big yeast starter or yeast cake. Uh, But also be careful about your fermentation temperatures because you don't want to generate a lot of fusels because those fusels and remember all those yeast characters including the fusels will get concentrated you know when you're doing this freezing process they'll become more intense low and slow is the tempo now once you're done fermenting it's time to get that sucker cold and of course you need to have it in a vessel that will take the cold so you got a few choices uh, the most popular of which that I can think of off the top of my head and then you tell me if you got anything else you got the bucket and you got the keg and if you try and freeze beer in a glass carboy, let me know before you do it, so I can go slap the stupid out of your head. Yeah, that's right. Because carboys are dangerous enough without putting expanding liquid in them.
1: And I find that the bucket is way easier to go with than the keg, but
0: you know, either one would work. See, and I have the uh, I have the opposite view, so this is good. What I what I try and do is okay, assuming that you're not being stupid, is I cold crash and I settle my beer because I want to get as much crud out of that liquid as I can. Then I transfer it into a second keg. Right. And then I turn my my freezer, because I don't live someplace where it gets cold enough, I turn my freezer down to 30 degrees, and I wait. And I usually start checking on the keg at about four hours into the process. And I give it a little shake, You I know, just rock it back and forth. Nothing too frantic, just... And what I want to hear and feel from the keg is the beer inside becoming kind of thick and sludgy and slushy slush. I want to I want to feel those ice shards kind of rocking against the the edges of the keg. And I'll push it to the point where I feel like it's just getting to that tipping point of going from slushy slush to solid block of ice. After all, I'm not trying to really go super hardcore on concentration, right? I'm not trying to squeeze every last bit of ethanol into the right into the yeah. water. So I'll then pull the keg from the cold, I'll put a bunch of CO two on it, and I'll push the beer out the other side into a brand new, very clean keg that's been purged. Remember purging's your friend. If all's gone right, by the time that the last liquid is out, I've pushed somewhere around three or so gallons or maybe a little bit more of just pure gold into the serving keg. And all that's left to do for me there is to carb it up and get ready to enjoy it. Now, if you're using a bucket, and Denny, I'll let you talk about doing a bucket because you've done it more than I have.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and sure, the keg does make a lot of sense, uh, but not having much sense, I use a bucket. Um, I like the bucket because, number one, I can open it up and see what's going on. Uh, I, You said you do yours at 30? mm mm-hmm. Yep. 30
0: i I've used 29. Well, the big key is just get down below 32.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I don't think the exact temperature matters, especially when it's only a degree. And I don't know of a temperature controller that will uh, hold it within a degree anyway. So I like using the bucket because, number one, I can open it up and see what's going on. And number two, to uh, get that slush out that Drew was talking about, I just use a sanitized
0: strainer and scoop it out. Use a keg use a bucket, use a chest freezer, or if you're in some place where Mother Nature has granted you giant banks of snow and actual cold weather, then you can always set your bucket or your keg outside and check on it. It's It you know, may or may not take longer. It all depends upon what your, your, your outdoor <laughs> yeah. temperatures are. Don't forget that you can also use a quick tip that came to us a few episodes back on the main show from uh, Nelson Kroll, who said that he doesn't like to commit to doing a full icing run. So he actually takes part of his bock into a two liter soda bottle uh, for safety's sake, squeezes the bottle just a little bit to kind of get some airspace out of it, closes up and freezes it to a slushy uh, consistency and then pours it out to a sieve to catch all the slush and then says, boom, I've got something that he can use. And it's uh, just a nice way to practice. Here's the other part about it is that I don't know, Denny, have, have you ever unfrozen the slush? No, I haven't.
1: Uh, you know, after, after I dumped it all last time, I thought, oh, I should have done that to at least see what it's like.
0: Yeah. Turns out you almost get a, uh, you get sort of a beery soda that does have some booze in it, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, it, but it tastes like a very, very weak beer, but some people actually enjoy it. So uh, not too bad, and maybe, maybe you should give it a try just to see uh, what it does for your low alcohol needs. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know, man. I'm afraid it would also be low flavor. I, I was actually surprised the last time I did it. I guess I would be surprised. So now, any other tips about how to actually do it? I mean, like we said, guys, the process is pretty brain dead.
1: Like you mentioned when you were talking about doing it accidentally, I wouldn't be surprised if most homebrewers have accidentally frozen the beer uh, by sticking it in the back of their fridge, by putting it in the freezer to cool, and then forgetting it was there for too long, it's like
0: it's like so easy that you can do it by mistake. Yeah, so easy even a baby could accidentally f- ice a beer. It's so easy that even I can do it. So now, of course, we can't leave you without leaving you without a practical example. So we're gonna we're gonna start with something a little non traditional that's still kind of halfway traditional because I'm me. And Denny's Denny. <laughs> and so we're going to start with uh, a beer that I'm calling Elsa's Helles Ice Bock for all the parents out there who've had to watch Frozen too many times. And the initial yield before you do any of the icing, it would be about five and a half gallons at 1080, 29 IBUs, and a color of about 10 SRM. Now, remember, that color is also probably going to get concentrated as well because you're removing well, water. Malt bills, fairly straightforward, 14 pounds of Pilsner, nice German pills here, two pounds of Munich and a half a pound of caro aroma. And that just gives a little extra oomph because we're going to need it here in a second. I do a very simple mash, a single infusion, 150 degrees for 60 minutes, and then uh, boil it for 90 minutes. And at 60 minutes, add three quarters of an ounce of Magnum at about 12% alpha acid. Uh, And then I ferment with arguably one of my favorite lager yeast out there, which is the uh, White Labs 833 German box strain, aka Ianger. Even if you don't ice the beer, this is a really wonderful beer to drink. You know, I, I really like that I anger character in these things.
1: Well, you know, and I think that that's a real key there. You don't want to make a crap beer and then try and uh, ice it because it's going to just concentrate any off flavors you have. So you want to make a delicious beer to start with.
0: Now, not only this falls into that 7.8 or so alcohol range, which puts it in the Doppelbach area. Uh, but of course, with sort of more of a Hellas slash Maybach uh, presentation. What can I say? I For whatever reason, I don't know why. I've always preferred a Hellas or a Maybach uh, in comparison to a, a traditional Bach, just personal taste. You ferment this, you get this bad boy down, remember slow and low, you got time on this. Let's say that we get five gallons or 18.9 liters, or 640 ounces of beer into the keg. And warning people, I'm going to do some math here on the radio. Uh Uh-oh. So you got that 640 ounces of beer in the keg at 7.8% ABV. It means we have approximately 50 ounces, or 1.5 liters, of uh, ethanol in the keg. If we reduce that keg via this freeze-concentration methodology to 3 gallons, or 384 ounces, or 11.4 liters... In a perfect world, we'd have those 50 ounces of ethanol come along with our beer, yielding three gallons at 13%. Basically, all we're doing there is just taking that total ethanol amount and dividing it by the new unfrozen volume, and that's your percentage in a perfect world. Yep, yep. But now the problem is, of course, uh, we are not in a perfect world. Math does not always reflect perfect reality, and... What will end up happening is some of your ethanol and other constituents will get entrained in ice as the ice is freezing. So your beer will usually be somewhat below that target of maximum extraction. And I find, I think usually the math that I see works out to be somewhere around 85%. So you get about 85% efficiency. The reason why I talked about leaving the slush and letting it melt back into a beer is that you'll end up with about 1% to 2% alcohol in the slush. Um, That's part of the reason why to give that a try. I have heard of some people letting the keg warm up just a little bit or their bucket warm up just a little bit on the theory that the ethanol will sort of work its way out of the ice faster than the water will melt. I don't know for certain if that actually will do a thing. There you guys go. If you're someplace where this is legal or if you're someplace where you accidentally leave your chest freezer on overnight, that is a good way to handle this uh, This technique. I like this beer, like I said, because I tend to prefer those my box. I, I like the the malt flavor better from these than I do from a traditional bock. Uh, Denny, I assume you prefer a traditional bok.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I do. Uh, you know, but again, I have limited experience, so I'd be, I'd be willing to try this, man. It sounds
0: good. And of course, yeah, you know, if you were going to do this with something like an IPA, remember our tip earlier in the day, which is your IPA will lose all of its hop aroma. So make sure you get it replaced, you know, so instead of just taking it to the keg and carbonate it, take it into the keg and dry hop it and carbonate it.
1: You know, and I have never done this with an IPA. I would wonder if it would also increase the bitterness. It does. Or if maybe the incre- – it does. Huh? Yeah, that's
0: what I would have guessed. Yeah, the, the, bitterness, the bitterness increases, but also remember that your sweetness is increasing. Exactly.
1: That's what I was wondering. So that yeah. even if the bitterness increased, it might maintain uh, some of of balance in there.
0: Stop saying that word.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I th-
0: You know, sometimes you just have to use the B word. Get out there and don't ice anything, ladies and gentlemen. Remember. It's not necessarily legal. But at the same time, if you find yourself with a frozen keg of beer, now you know what to do. That's right. If if it happens accidentally, you're prepared now. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of getting really, really, really cold, just so you can get really, really warm with a snifter of beer at night. If you give this a try, either legally or by accident, Let us know how it worked. What's your favorite frozen slushy experience that you've ever tasted or done? So now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, Reddit, and just about every homebrewing forum known out there. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is...
1: It is NowZad, an organization in Afghanistan helping soldiers who rescue animals and bring them home.
0: There you go. So until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there.